Hey guys, this is Danny Nelson from Borderless. My co-host Anna is out this week, so we wanted to showcase another podcast for a guest episode. Here, Lee Quen speaks with Boaz Sobrato. Hope you enjoy. There are no borders with Bitcoin, and from the beginning, its disruption has been global. This week on Borderless, tech reporter Lee Quinn speaks with entrepreneur Boaz Sobrato to discuss the Cuban Bitcoin market and how the internet penetration in Cuba is accelerating Bitcoin adoption. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello, this is Lee Quinn, and joined today by Costa Rican-Hungarian data analyst Boaz Sobrato. Thank you so much for joining us today, Boaz. Hi, Lee. Thank you very much. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about your personal tumble down the Bitcoin rabbit hole? So my personal Bitcoin story is actually relatively long. I had heard of it very early, so back in 2012, but obviously I dismissed it as being late to the bubble, etc., etc. I do remember over university that we did discuss, so this was over like 2013, 2014, I did speak quite a lot about Bitcoin, but I was uh, quite skeptical and didn't really think about it very hard. And then in 2017, when the mania came up again, I started listening again to what was going on. And I started following it properly, but really I went down the rabbit hole and, and I was convinced in 2018, 19, when, when I had to start using it for personal reasons or for business reasons, better said, that, that related to the business that I ran in Cuba. So I guess my story is somewhat typical in that the news cycle accelerated things, but very quickly had to use Bitcoin for, you know, in real life, you could say. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the business that you used to operate and how Bitcoin played into it back when international travel and business was much more of a thing before the pandemic? Yeah. So basically, back in 2016, there was this thesis that Cuba was soon to be opening up for business. This was the year that Obama visited Cuba and American restrictions were relaxed. Airbnb opened up in Cuba. Stripe started doing business with Cuban entrepreneurs. So I flew out to Cuba, a place where I'd never been before, by the way. And I tried to set up a business there. I tried to see what sort of opportunities were there. I tried to network with people. And I very quickly realized that, unfortunately, there's not much that you can do selling to Cubans, um, mostly because Cubans, unfortunately, don't have that much money. But there's quite a lot that you can do in helping Cubans sell online and sell to foreigners. And one of the biggest industries back then was the tourism industry. So I started working on building out different ways in which I can help Cuban entrepreneurs sell services online. That's what I did for a few years um, while tourism was still alive, of course. And we did a lot of different things. So we did accommodation, we did transportation, and the thesis was basically that I like, help Cubans sell online. And very quickly, we found that once the American administration changed and regulations changed a bit, it, it became very difficult for us to bank in normal places and to process payments in normal places. So overall, we were cut down from financial services, and we, we quickly turned to using Bitcoin to move money in and out of the country, which was not only more cost efficient, but a lot more comfortable for us. Gotcha. So international clients would pay in Bitcoin, and then if you needed to pay the entrepreneurs on the ground, 
did they cash out in local Cuban currency or was there any other system for that? So the way it worked, uh, nobody knew that we were using Bitcoin on the side. So we were being paid by our clients, which include big companies like Airbnb and Booking.com. We were being paid through bank transfers or with credit cards or debit cards, etc. And we'd receive these funds in Europe and basically convert them to Bitcoin and then sell the Bitcoin in Cuba to, to people that needed Bitcoin there mostly, you know, small entrepreneurs, um, and then uh, use the cash that we received to pay off the suppliers that we needed to pay in, in Cuba. Gotcha. So I've heard of this kind of arrangement where it's basically an exchange behind the scenes that makes everything operate smoothly for the user. I know that it's probably been a little bit on the back burner with tourism slowing down now, but you still have family back in Costa Rica, correct? Yeah, so I'm half Costa Rican, I speak Spanish, and I pretty much flew out to Cuba only because I, I thought it would be an interesting opportunity to, to do business there. It was actually a terrible idea for me to do so, by the way, but I arrived to Cuba and I didn't really know anyone, but by now I've, I've set up a pretty decent network and I'm in touch on a day-to-day basis with a lot of people that I call my friends who, who live there. So, so yeah, I'm still in touch with people there. Gotcha. You said that you just thought it would be like an interesting opportunity and you heard about it. How do you end up deciding on Cuba as the opportunity and go about making local contacts when you hadn't really ever been there before, didn't have any local connections there? Yeah, so, so the thesis was, so after university, I went to work for Rocket Internet, which is a German venture building company. And I went to work for them in a country that's known as Burma or Myanmar. I was there in 2015, before the whole uh, controversy of uh, genocide and all that happened. But back then, the thesis was the same. This is a country that has been closed for 50 years or more. It's recently opening up. And I was there and I saw that everything was growing at 10% a year. There were incredible business opportunities. But I felt constrained by the fact that I don't speak Burmese. And it's very likely that I will never speak Burmese in my life. So I started thinking, okay, so what sort of countries are there where there's incredible business opportunities? Everything is growing 10% a year, and I speak the language. And back then, in 2016, I thought that country would be Cuba. Gotcha. And since then, you've written quite a few blog posts about the economic situation in Cuba. And if I recall correctly, last year you wrote in one that the remittance rate dropped by 50% to 3 million last year. Can you tell me a little bit about how the friends and former colleagues that you had met in Cuba were doing during the pandemic after Western Union stopped offering remittances and a lot of other companies, as you were saying, uh, made it difficult to send money in or out of the country. So Cuba is currently undergoing the worst economic crisis since uh, the 1990s, and it's pretty bad. So the 1990s was, was terrible in the sense that people went hungry and were not quite there yet. But 2019, 2020, and 2021 have all been really, really bad years for the Cuban economy. With the remittance rate going down, um, there's, there's less and less money in the country. There's more scarcity. Getting products is harder. Inflation is going up. Overall, everyone that I know that lives in Cuba is going through difficult times right now, mostly because... If you work in tourism, a lot of people that I know that worked in tourism just simply cannot find any jobs. And because of the flight restrictions, a lot of the informal importing economy is also grounded. So basically, people that used to fly in with goods or with money even for remittances 
have just stopped flying. So there's just so many things that you cannot get in the country. So to sum it up, it's, it's, it's been a very difficult year and the, the whole remittance situation has definitely not helped because what the government has done is that they're in strong need of, of hard currency as well. So they've set up a lot of shops where effectively you can only buy for hard currency using a system called the moneda libremente convertible, which, which basically means that you have to top up a card with US dollars or euros or some other foreign currency, and you can only pay in these retail stores with this hard currency. And the, the big issue there is that a lot of, I mean, the majority of Cubans don't have access to hard currency, especially not now that, you know, tourism has cut off the largest traditional source of hard currency for the population. And in these shops, things that they sell in these shops are, are often essential, foodstuffs and, and not just luxury items. So um, a lot of people have had difficulty finding beer, finding, you know, basically a lot of things that you wouldn't expect to go without essential foods, bread, etc. Wow. So it sounds like Bitcoin was very useful when there was this free flow of goods and people or relatively free in Cuba's case. And then when that stops because of the pandemic, then it became mostly only useful for the flow of digital goods and services uh, because it was just so difficult to get anything in or out of the country. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, I would say that Bitcoin is now at peak importance because Western Union and a lot of official remittance agencies have effectively shut down. So it's really hard to get money in and out of the country. The inflation levels are going up a lot. Um, you know, and official exchange rates show that there's been a substantial uh, decrease in the value of, of the Cuban peso. And add to this, you know, the usual reaction of a government like this, which is to set internal price limits, which lead to scarcity. So there's a lot of financial censorship going on, both from the Cuban government that wants to try to control the economy and try to, you know, quote unquote, you know, punish speculators that are pushing prices up. And on the other hand, there's also the, the sort of external financial censorship that comes from the US government, right? So if you're a Cuban entrepreneur and you want to sell phone cases in Cuba, you can't order on Alipay or Amazon the way most people can because you just don't have access to the international financial system. So the only method that these people have is, 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 is to use Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. And, and yeah, and the fact that the, 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 the population has been cut off from the traditional sort of inflation resistant store of value, which has been, you know, US dollars, which is what everyone wants at the end of the day, they, they don't have access to that anymore because there's a lot less tourism following the pandemic. So a lot more people are looking into digital currencies as a way of protecting themselves against inflation. Yeah, I've been hearing this a lot lately in terms of people in different Latin American markets turning to the dollar or crypto substitutes for the dollar or crypto access points to the dollar as they lose trust in their local currencies. I'm curious if you think that there's any similarities or, or stark differences between the case in Cuba and, for example, the case in Venezuela. So one important difference is that Cuba has been on the sanctions list for over 50 years. So that effectively means that a lot of the infrastructure that was available for Venezuela is not available for Cuba, right? So websites like local bitcoins, Paxful and, and others effectively ban Cuban users. A lot of the wallets cannot be accessed. In fact, um, all of the, the, the simple light client wallets 
uh, for cryptocurrencies cannot be accessed. And overall, it's a little bit harder for, for Cubans to use the quote unquote traditional crypto infrastructure. They can't just make an account on Binance, for example. So the market's developed a little bit differently there. It's a lot more peer-to-peer. It's a lot more informal with Telegram groups and small local websites that have been popping up. And they've been growing at an incredible rate. So there's a website called Bitremesas, which is Spanish for bit remittances. And basically, the way it claims to work, I'm not entirely sure if this is how it works, but the way it claims to work is that you make the Bitcoin transfer to an address that you give them give them the details of the person you want to receive the remittance. And on the back end of this, there's some sort of like auction system where someone bids for some some trader bids for for that Bitcoin at a certain price and sends money to um, local currency to your um, relative or friend or loved one. And it's held in escrow until that's actually executed. And I've tried it and it works. There's a lot of very cool initiatives popping up that make it uh, very different to, to places like Venezuela. It's a lot more of a homegrown thing in a way. And it's obviously not quite gotten to the volumes of Venezuela yet. But then again, if it, if it did get there, we probably wouldn't know it because there's, there's no way of tracking these peer-to-peer transactions. So what I'm hearing from you is there's this huge gap in terms of the infrastructure. And I wonder if you think also the fact that Cuba is an island has factored in at all because we see several startups that are serving the Venezuelan market and usually from bordering countries, right? But Cuba is isolated geographically. Do you think that also plays into why it is maybe we hear more about Bitcoin usage in Venezuela than we do in Cuba? I think the main reason we hear more about Venezuela than Cuba is that Venezuela has been going through difficult time for many years now. So Bitcoin has been something there for, for many years. And also, Venezuela had very cheap subsidized electricity, which made the country appealing to Bitcoin miners and for the population to mine Bitcoin. And also, the government there had a cryptocurrency initiative. So the whole Venezuelan cryptocurrency thing has has been moving together for quite a while now. The thing is, in Cuba, the internet's only really been around properly recently. So only in the last two, three years has it happened that the, the population the internet penetration has gone up substantially and it's gone from you know a very small percentage of the population having access to the internet to now i think the majority of the country you know regularly logs on and uses the internet and i think that's the reason we haven't spoken about cuba and bitcoin so far because up until very recently people had no internet so without any internet even talking about bitcoin doesn't really make sense but now that the internet's more widespread and more available, I think we're, I suspect that we're going to be hearing a lot about Cuba and crypto. Gotcha. So we've been talking a lot about Cuba and about Latin America in general. I'm curious about for you, have you ever heard of people using Bitcoin in Costa Rica, for example? Because that would have a starkly different economic situation than Venezuela and Cuba. So I've actually looked into Bitcoin transactions here and the market's actually a lot smaller as far as I can tell. I haven't had a strong incentive to find out about how things work here, but I would find it easier to sell Bitcoin in, in Cuba right now than I would in Costa Rica. As far as I could tell, there's very, very limited demand on, on local Bitcoins and Paxful. There seems not to be a lot of interest as far as I can tell. That being said, there have been some high profile media cases here in Costa Rica but with regards to Bitcoin. And one of them, unfortunately, was a kidnapping where 
an American businessman was was kidnapped by I think his girlfriend and and some other people, and the ransom was demanded in Bitcoin. And in fact, the police traced the, the Bitcoin payments and eventually found the culprits of this kidnapping. But as far as I can tell, it's not really been as as big a story here. But then again, here people have access to to hard currency, to US dollars, the Costa Rican currency hasn't gone um, through terrible inflation either. There's no serious capital controls. So it's a very, very different environment. People don't really feel like they need it that much here. Gotcha. So that's interesting because Costa Rica might have a comparable, although by no means a stark geographic isolation in the fact that it's an island and during a pandemic, much fewer goods and services and people are going in and out. But because it has a stronger economic situation, the Bitcoin bull run that has been all the rage in some other countries, North America included, has not necessarily had the same impact in Costa Rica. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there's some a little bit of a geographical difference, though, because Costa Rica always often gets confused with Puerto Rico, which, which is, in fact, an island. Costa Rica is, is actually in, in Central America, and it's, it's not an island. It's, it's, it's got the, the Caribbean and it's got the Pacific on both sides, but to the north, it's bordered with, to Paragua and to the south, Panama. So there are like land connections. You, you could, in theory, walk all the way to the United States if you wanted to. Oh, you're right. I apologize. I remember that it's on that little skinny strip. It's exactly, exactly. Don't worry. I, it, this happens all the time. Gotcha. So as somebody who used Bitcoin as part of your business in the past, and I'm curious to hear if Bitcoin you think will be useful for you in any future endeavors, or if now it's mostly for savings, for example, considering the risks that you pointed out of kidnapping. So having a public association with Bitcoin itself might have a, a high opportunity cost in some places. Yeah, actually, I think this is a valid point. I think in countries where kidnapping is a reality, I wouldn't be surprised to see more people demanding payment in, in Bitcoin. And in fact, we, you are seeing this with the rise of ransomware as well. So ransomware is an industry that was previously not really possible because you can really pay your hackers anyway, or it would be extremely hard to pay your hackers. Whereas now with cryptocurrency, it's extremely simple to demand payment in Monero or in Bitcoin. So to answer your question, I wouldn't be very surprised if, if we saw more and more news about kidnappings and other crimes that were related to cryptocurrencies. As for what use it has to me now, I feel like my usage of Bitcoin for my business has sort of opened my eyes a bit to the realities of how tenuous our understanding of money is. Also operating in Cuba. So to give you an example, back in 2019, one Cuban, one CUC, which is the dollar pegged Cuban peso, was pretty much traded one-to-one -to, -one to the dollar. And... Now, it's roughly two-thirds or maybe even half, depending on who you ask. You can lose the, the value of, of money can evaporate pretty quickly. Um, and it's happening in many, many places. And I think that having experienced and seen that has given me, a, I think, a different perspective on the value of having some sort of currency that is not you know, controlled by any government in the way that if I only lived in the US or in Europe, um, I might not have this perspective. Is there anything else that you think is important for people to know about Bitcoin in some of these countries that maybe people in North America might not have considered as we think in general about how Bitcoin is useful these days? I just want to make a point that 
But I think a lot of people that live in developed countries honestly overestimate or don't appreciate how hard it can be to do very, very simple things from, from countries that are not as plugged into the mainstream. And I'm not just talking about Cuba because Cuba is a very special case, right? They've been under sanctions for 50 years by the U.S. It's a very, very complicated country for many reasons. So perhaps it's not the best example to bring up. But in many, many countries, even in places like Indonesia or Malaysia or other countries where hundreds of millions of people live, it's just not that easy to do something like process a credit card transaction or to, for example, make an international bank transfer or to pay for hosting using your debit or credit card. These things that many people take for granted in the developed world are friction points in other jurisdictions. I think that, that one of the big promises of Bitcoin is that it removes these friction points for, for everyone. So as long as you can somehow get your hands on some Bitcoin, then you can buy hosting, you can pay for things on Amazon, you can you know, do all sorts of things that it wouldn't necessarily be possible if you're tied to your local financial system or if you're effectively unbanked. So I think these are the things that people often neglect and, and, and fail to see why Bitcoin is useful is because you know, they, it solves a lot of problems that they don't have. So people did assume that these problems don't exist. Totally. And as someone who has done business with Bitcoin and gives interviews and, and puts your real name out there and had it associated with your real operating business, do you have any tips for people that are curious about wanting to use this tool, but are cautious about the risk that it might make them a target for someone who is looking to get some ransom Bitcoin? Yeah, well, I, I, first of all, I'd like to you know, let all my potential kidnappers know that unfortunately, I don't hold nearly as much Bitcoin as I should. That being said, I know I'm completely aware of the fact that it is risky to associate yourself in, in certain jurisdictions with, with cryptocurrencies. The liberty I have to give this interview the way I am giving it now is partly due to the fact that you know, I don't actually live in Cuba. I don't have to worry about any particular you know, legal issues there. So yeah, no, you, you have to be careful with what you do and what you discuss. But that being said, if you're thinking about using Bitcoin as a tool, I think it's a fairly risk-free way of, to make cross-border transactions. It's actually quite profitable depending on your jurisdiction. So we used to sell Bitcoin at a very substantial premium to what it costs us to buy it because the demand for Bitcoin in Cuba was so high compared to the supply. Very, very profitable for us as a business. But we didn't, as a business, invest in cryptocurrencies in the way that many businesses recently have. We just use it as a sort of bridge asset to go from one jurisdiction to the other unencumbered. Gotcha. So due to your custody and operations setup, it didn't put you at any greater risk than, say, if you're using dollars or another payment mechanism. No, not at all. Like, pretty much we'd buy and sell immediately, and, and we were not exposed to any substantial currency fluctuation risk. I mean, people talk about Bitcoin being extremely volatile, and it is. But if you're actually transacting with it, then the sort of volatility, you know, if you, if you make several transactions, you know, you receive Bitcoin, you sell Bitcoin, etc., the volatility pretty much evens out. Wow. I feel like I learned a lot today. Thanks so much for joining us and telling us about your experiences, Boz. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot for inviting me and continue doing the good work. Thank you. And to everyone listening at home, 
Thanks again for joining. This is Lee Quinn with Coindesk. For more interviews and insights, be sure to check out coindesk.com. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to Borderless, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. By subscribing to one feed with your favorite player, you'll get free access to all the shows from the editorial team at Coindesk, each focused on a particular niche, perspective, or ongoing discussion within the world of cryptocurrency. This episode featured Lee Quinn and Boaz Sobrato. Today's show was announced, edited, and produced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Cody Martin. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcast at coindesk.com. Mm-hmm.